Look, despite the often used phrase, there's no such thing as an overnight success. You cannot show me one overnight success. Once we dig in, we're going to find out they did a lot to get that overnight success. Success always comes as a result of earlier actions, always. No matter how seemingly insignificant those actions are or how long ago they may have taken, somebody had to do something. Anyone who refers to a business, product, actor, band, anything, any dream, concept, or idea as an overnight success neglects to understand the mental stakes that certain individuals have to make in order to forge the path. They don't see the countless actions taken before these people actually created and acquired their much-deserved victory. Even those born into royalty had to do something. Look, success comes about as a result of mental and spiritual claims to own it, followed by taking necessary actions over time until that state is acquired. If you approach success with any less gusto than your ethical and moral duty, obligation, and responsibility to your family, your company, and your future, you will most likely not create success and have even more difficulty keeping it. I guarantee that when you, your family, and your company begin to consider or approach success as a responsibility and an ethical issue, then everything else will immediately start to shift. Although ethics are certainly a personal issue, most people will agree that being ethical is not necessarily limited to telling the truth or stealing or not stealing money. Our definition of ethics or your understanding of ethics could certainly be expanded from just stealing money or not stealing money, perhaps even include the notion that you are required to live up to your potential with which you've been blessed in order to be truly ethical. I even suggest to you that failing to insist upon abundant amounts of success in whatever area of life, or in fact all areas of life, is somewhat unethical. To the degree that electing to do your personal best each and every day is ethical, then failing to do so is a violation of your ethics. You must constantly demand success as your duty, obligation, and responsibility, and I'm going to show you how to guarantee that this happens in any business, any product, any industry, at any time, despite all obstacles, and in whatever volumes of success you desire. Remember, success must be approached from an ethical viewpoint. Success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Okay, your exercise in this chapter. Bang it out quick. Success should be approached as blank, blank, and blank. Now, write in your own words how success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Great. Write down two examples of how you lie to yourself about what success is. And lastly, what are the two things that are important to know about success? Chapter 5. There is no shortage of success. The way you view success is just as important as how you approach success. Unlike a product that is manufactured in inventory, the good news about success is there's no limit as to how much success a person can create. You can have as much as you want, and so can I. And your achievement doesn't prevent or limit my abilities to achieve my success. 
Unfortunately, most people look at success as though it's somehow a scarcity. They tend to think that, oh, if Mike's successful, if he makes it, it will somehow inhibit their ability to create success. Look, success isn't a lottery. It's not a bingo game. It's not a horse race. It's not a card game. It doesn't allow for just one winner. It is simply not the case that there's a shortage of success. It's not a product. Garden Gecko in the movie Wall Street said, for every winner, there is a loser. This was his whole pitch on the zero-sum game, that there has to be a loser. But success is not a commodity. It's not a resource. There's no limited reserves on it. There will never be a dearth of success. By the way, the editor added that word. That's not one of my words. Dearth means a lack, a shortage. There will never be a dearth of success because it's created by those who have no limits in terms of ideas, creativity, ingenuity, talent, intelligence, originality, persistence, and determination. Notice that I refer to success as something that's created, not acquired. Unlike copper, silver, gold, diamonds, or items that already exist, that you got to find to bring to the market. Success is something people make. Great ideas, new technologies, innovative products, fresh solutions to old problems are all things that cannot exist in shortages. The creation of success can take place all over the world, either at the same time or at different times and at different levels. And it can happen by millions of people and still not have any limits. Success doesn't depend on a resource or a supply or space or time. Politics and the media perpetuate, you know, these concepts of shortages by suggesting there's not enough of certain things to go around that if you have something, I can't have it. Many politicians believe they need to spread this myth in order to energize their followers to take a stand for them or against another politician or a party. They make statements like, I will take better care of you than the other guy. I will make life easier for you. I will reduce taxes for you. I promise better education for your kids. I'll make it more possible for you to be successful. Dude, you know it's all garbage. They're not going to do anything for you. Both sides are saying the same things to get you energized. The underlying implication of their claims is that only they can do this for you and the other guy can't and won't. You see? So you take sides. Oh, there's a shortage. He can't make me. No, you're right. Neither one of them can. These politicians first emphasize the topics and initiatives that they know their followers consider important. Then they create the sense that citizens, you, aren't capable of doing or creating success for yourself. They highlight that scarcity exists, and they do their best to make people feel that their only chance at getting what they want and what they need is that some government must support them and take care of them. Otherwise, they imply that your chances of getting your share become even more remote. Look, man, all you got to do is take a quick look at the most successful people. They're not dependent upon anyone. One of the reasons why it's difficult to discuss politics or religion with people is because any exchange or communication or discussion about both tend to suggest a shortage, which then causes inevitable disputes. For example, if your political beliefs win, then someone else's loses. If one party gets what it supports, then supposedly another group must suffer. The same can be said for certain general attitudes and viewpoints. 
You know, it's extremely difficult for people to agree to disagree. People operate under the assumption that one person's beliefs cannot be maintained if another person's conflicting beliefs even exist. This notion, based on once again the concept of limits and shortages, only increases the amount of tension we have with one another. Look, why does one person have to be wrong and another one right? Is there a chance that Jen could be right, have one idea, and I could also be right and have a completely different one? Why the need for shortages? See, the notion of competition suggests that if one person wins, someone else has to lose. Although this might be true in a board game where the goal is to produce one winner, this is not the reality with regard to success in business and in life. Look, the big players do not think in terms of restrictions like this. Instead, they think without limits, something that allows them to soar to levels that many consider or once considered impossible. Financial legend Warren Buffett's success is not capped or limited because of someone else's investment strategies, and in no way does his financial proudness and success confine or limit my ability to create financial success for myself. The founders of Google didn't stop the creation of Facebook, nor did two decades of Microsoft's dominance in the marketplace prevent Steve Jobs from raising Apple's profiles with iPods, iPhones, and iPads. Similarly, the amount of new products, ideas, and successful creations by these companies and ones like them over the past years will not prevent you and others from generating future success at even more astounding magnitudes. You don't have to look far to see the shortage myth perpetuated by most of the population via expressions of envy, disagreement, unfairness, and suggestions that those who hit it big have been unfairly compensated. The constant reports in the media shortage of jobs, money, opportunities, and disparity between earning incomes. How often do you hear someone make the claim that there isn't enough time in the day? Or, you know, 1% of the people make more money than 50% of the population. Or someone else complains that there aren't any good jobs or no one is hiring. The reality is that even if 20% of the population was unemployed, 80% of them would have jobs. And the truth is, the 20% could get a job anytime they wanted to if they really amped up and made it their duty, obligation, and responsibility. Another example of this shortage thinking took place recently in my own neighborhood. The man who lives next door to me, incidentally, one of the most famous actors in Hollywood today, major player, major star, incredible talent. The road that separates my house from his constantly has potholes. That the city, you know, they're out of money. They never seem to be able to get up there to fix them. Another one of my neighbor who lives at the end of the street had the gall to suggest to me that the movie star, the A-lister guy, should pay to fix the street because he makes $20 million plus a movie. This is shortage concept mentality. This is a person that's screwed up in the head, man. I was shocked by this person's thought process regarding success. The, the winner, the actor hitting it big, he should pay for the street because he's created success beyond that which me or my neighbor has been able to. And because of that, he should foot the bill for fixing the street that all three of us drive down. I was thinking that the rest of us should improve the road for him. I'm thinking, man, we ought to fix the road for him. He improves the value of our whole neighborhood.
You know, when some TV personality or some major player on Wall Street gets a massive financial contract or payday, people often react by asking, how can one person get paid so much money? It's not fair. And you hear all this hating going on, this envy. But money is created by man and printed by machines. Look, not even money exists in shortages. It merely suffers from reductions in value. Some group deeming a single individual worth $400 million should be an encouragement to anyone that wants $400 million. Look, anything becomes possible. Why be a hater? I found that most, if not all, shortages are simply manufactured concepts. They're notions. They're made up. They're myths. The company or organization that can convince you that there are limited amounts of whatever that you might need or want, be it diamonds, oil, water, clean air, cool weather, warm weather, energy, whatever, is able to produce a sense of urgency, thereby inspiring people to support their cause. Look, rid yourself of the concept that success can be restricted or cut off or comes in amounts. Operating under the notion that there's a shortage will hurt your ability to create success for yourself. Let's say that you and I are bidding to win a client, and I get the client's business. This doesn't mean that you cannot be successful. After all, this wasn't the only client you were bidding for, was it? See, if you failed here and you don't have anybody to replace this client with, being dependent on only a single thing or person for success is what limited your chance of achieving success. Although you and I were competing on this one contract and awarded one of us the winner, there's a third player neither one of us knew about, Mr. Think Big, no shortage, the player, the slayer. And he's winning thousands of clients while you and I are fighting and quibbling over one. And he shows us the real definition of success. To get beyond the shortage myth, you have to shift your thinking to see that others' achievements actually create an opportunity for you to win. Success for anyone or any group should be considered ultimately a positive contribution to all people and all groups as it provides validation of the possibility that success exists at all. That is why people become so inspired when they witness some great victory or performance. Seeing success in action invigorates all of us and then reduces, whether you know it or not, is reducing our belief that the ability to accomplish something is impossible. Whether the success is a new technology, a medical breakthrough, a higher score, a faster time, a new record price for something, or whether you participated or not, achievements that are extraordinary or confirmation that success is not in shortage and is entirely possible to you and everyone else. So erase any concepts that you might have that success has limits, or that success is limited to some, or only comes in certain amounts. You and I can get as much as we want, and we can do it at the same time. The moment you start thinking someone else's gain is your loss, you limit yourself by thinking in terms of competition and shortages. This is the moment when you must discipline your thinking to equate any success, even someone else's success, with the possibility that you can have more success. Then move back to your commitment that success is your ethical duty, 
This will motivate the most creative parts of you to find the solution and the way in in which you can create original success for you in abundant amounts. Okay, the exercise. Look, write down an example of shortages of success that you have seen in your life. That's right. Write down examples of shortages of success. Now I want you to write down how were these supposed shortages actually created? Because you probably had difficulty even coming up with the examples of shortages of success. And the last one is, there exist no shortages of success, but what is there a truly a shortage of? Chapter 6, Assume Control for Everything. I was going to call this chapter, Don't Be a Little Bitch, but decided to back off a bit so as not to offend anyone. And there, I went and slipped and said it anyway. I've been trying to work this title in since I published my last book, which became a New York Times bestseller. It's called, If You're Not First, You're Last. I still love this title, Don't Be a Little Bitch. I've been dying to work it in someplace, and I finally squeezed it in. I love that. I thought it'd be uh, perfect for this chapter since the purpose here is to discuss the idea that crybabies, I said it, whiners and victims just don't do well at attracting or creating success. It's not even that they aren't capable. It's just that people who typically succeed are required to take big actions. And it's impossible to take big actions if you don't take big responsibility. It's equally impossible to do something positive when you're spending your time making excuses. Hey, look, it's not even that these people aren't capable. It's just that people who typically succeed are required to take big action. And it's impossible to take big actions if you don't take big responsibility. It's equally impossible to do something positive when you're spending your time making excuses. Because look, man, making excuses is just being negative. You must understand, as I've already stated countless times, success is not something that happens to you. It's something that happens because of you. And because of the actions that you took. People who refuse to take responsibility generally don't do well at taking much action and subsequently don't do well in the game of success. Successful people accept very high levels of accountability for creating and having success for themselves and even for failing to do so. Now, if when I said that, you thought about some rich guy that never takes responsibility, I promise you he's not successful, not truly successful in his life. Successful people hate the blame game and know that it's better to make something happen, good or bad, than to have something happen to them. Those who suffer from victim thinking, victim thinking, which I roughly estimate, definitely not scientific here, about 50% of the population could be more, will hate this chapter and probably pick this book up by mistake. Anyone who uses blame as the reason why something happened or did not happen, I promise you, will never accumulate real success in life and only further his or her status as a slave on this planet. I'm going to say that to you again. It's ugly, man. It's ugly. If you can't swallow it, you know what they say about the shoe. Anyone who uses blame as the reason why something happened or did not happen will not accumulate real success in their life and only will further his or her status as a slave on planet Earth. Those who give control over to another for their success or their lack of success will never be in control of their lives or their futures. 
No game in life is truly enjoyable without first accepting control over your understanding of the game, how to play the game, and then the outcome of the game. People who assume the position of victim will never be secure. Simply because they elect to turn over responsibility to another party and because they never elect to know for themselves what they can do. They therefore never take charge over their outcomes going forward saying, I am a little victim, bad things happen to me often, and they do it with pride, and I cannot do anything about it. Oh, woe is me, the little bitch. This is not in the book, by the way. To get where you want to go in life, you must adopt the view that whatever is going on in your world, good, bad, or nothing, is something caused by you. I assume control over everything that happens to me, even for those things that I appear to have no control over. Whether I'm in control or not, I still elect to claim responsibility and control so that I can do something to improve my situation going forward. If, for example, the electricity goes out of my neighborhood, rather than blaming the city or the state for the blackout, I look at what I could do differently in order not to be impacted negatively the next time this might happen. Now, don't confuse this with some compulsive need for control, which I don't think is bad, by the way. It's simply a high-level, healthy sense of responsibility and a way for me to generate an effective solution to a problem or a situation that might exist in the future. The reality is, look, I didn't have anything to do with the lights going out. It could have been to too many people using electricity at the same time or a heat wave. It could have been an earthquake. It could have been somebody hitting a transformer. Look, I paid my bill, man. I paid as scheduled. And now I'm out of electricity and heat, and I'm unable to boil my water, refrigerate my food, use my computers, watch TV, run my business, and take care of my family. Look, blaming doesn't change those conditions. And because success is my duty, my obligation, and my responsibility, it's a little hard for me to now turn that over to the state and the city. I mean, if you're going to turn control over somebody, please don't give it to them. It's kind of hard to consider yourself successful if you're without lights, heat, and having to look at spoiled foods in the refrigerator. When I assume and increase my responsibility for this exact situation, we're back to the lights, I guarantee you I'll come up with a solution going forward. You've probably already thought of what it could be. This didn't happen to me because the electricity went out. Hey, look, it happened to me because I didn't have a backup generator. This wasn't bad luck or bad planning. It was a result of turning responsibility over to the state or the city. Don't be a little bitch, I say. Get a generator. Oh, but generators cost money, Grant. Not everybody can have a generator, Grant. Hey, truth is, when the electricity's out, you're not going to worry about the money you don't have. You're going to worry about the lights you can't live without. Not as much money as being without electricity for three days and not being able to take care of your family for three days and not run your business for three days. See, once you decide to take control of everything and increase your responsibility for everything, you're going to find successful solutions to making your life better and to guaranteeing success for yourself, your family, your household, and your future. Assume control and increase responsibility by adopting the position that you make all things happen, even those things you had previously considered not to be under your control. Never, never take the position that things happen to you. Rather, take the position that they happen because of something you did or you did not, maybe you failed to do. If you're willing to take credit when you win, baby, you got to take credit when you don't win. 
Increasing your responsibility level will inherently enhance your ability to find solutions and create success and more success and future successes for yourself. Blaming someone else or something else or somebody else or some country or group only extends how long you're going to be a victim and then a slave. Assuming control will cause you to start to look at what else you can do to make sure negative events don't take place so that you can improve the quality of your life and reduce the occurrence of seemingly random, unfortunate events. So let's say somebody rear-ends me. Somebody drives into the back of my car. Clearly that person's at fault, right? Yeah, of course. Although I'm going to be upset with him or her, I'm probably going, hey, what are you doing? The last thing I want to do is assume the responsibility of the position of being a victim. Why'd you do that to me? Look at what happens to you when you assume that position. How horrible. Look what happened to poor old little me. I'm a victim. Look, would you get a business card or have a television campaign stating this to the public as a way to garner respect and attention? Can you imagine on a business card? Sales professional, also victim part-time. You know, Or you run a TV ad. Our company is victim-oriented. No, man. Why would you even say it to yourself? Of course not. Never claim the position of a victim after you made a decision to create a life filled with success. You see the conflict? Instead, figure out how to reduce the chances of this inconvenience rear-ending people that can't drive. You know they're out there. The 10X rule refers to massive amounts of action taken persistently over time. In order to make good things happen more often, you cannot afford ever to act like a victim. Good things just don't happen to victims. Bad things happen to victims, and they happen to them quite frequently, and all you got to do is ask them. Those who embrace the victim position will gladly go on and on and on with you about how they had nothing to do with the many bad and endless breaks they've had in life, their life of being a victim. There are four consistent factors in the life of every victim. Number one, bad things happen to them. Number two, bad things happen often. Number three, they're always involved in the bad things. They were involved, right? And number four, someone or something else is always to blame. Successful people, on the other hand, take the opposite stance. And you must take this stance in order to acquire and maintain success. Successful people assume that everything that happens in their life comes as a result of their own responsibility, not because of some outside force. This is going to prompt them to start looking for ways to move beyond situations and take control of not having bad things, quote-unquote, happen to them. Begin to ask yourself, after every unpleasant encounter or event, what can I do to reduce my chance of that ever happening again? Or, what can I do to ensure this never, ever happens again? Returning to my earlier example of being rear-ended, there are many ways that you or me might have prevented this from happening. From having a distracted, idiot, if you will, driver run into the back of your car or my car. Look, you could have gotten a driver. You could have left earlier. You could have left later. You could have closed the deal last week rather than having to go out and get it today. You could have taken a different route. Or, hey, you could be so important that your clients would actually drive to you rather than you driving to them. What were you doing driving to somebody else anyway? Come on, man. Take your game to another level. What I'm trying to do is get you to shift your thinking a bit more. Move. 
Many people agree with the notion that you draw or attract things into your life. Most people I talk to, oh, yeah, I believe in this whole this concept of attracting things into my life. Yeah, but you don't want to take responsibility for the bad stuff you're attracting, just the good stuff. Many people agree with the notion that you draw or attract, right? And they even agree that you draw people into your life, those things that you pay the most attention to. Many may also agree that they have tapped in to only a small portion of their understanding of their mental capacity and capability. Come on, is there any possibility then that you made some decision that you might not even be aware of sometime prior to you going out on this appointment? That you actually created this supposed accident so that you could continue to have someone to blame in life? If it's even remotely possible, then it's worth investigating. Understand that you had to be at that one place at that perfect moment in order to be involved in this accident. Thousands of other people were not involved. You were. You left at the precise time to coordinate with some other person on one of hundreds of streets and then arranged to be at the exact spot in front of the guy rather than behind him at the precise moment and position yourself directly in front of that one special driver who was not even paying attention and rammed into your car. Look, when bad things happen to good people, I assure you that the good people had more to do with it than they're taking responsibility for. So bad things do happen to good people. Just understand. The good people had something to do with it. Had you left moments earlier, moments, seconds, you could have avoided the supposed accident. Had you been driving at any other speed, okay, faster or slower, it would have been impossible for you to have coordinated so perfectly. Had you taken any other street, this would not have happened. Sound too far out? Yeah, maybe it is. Was it just an accident or was it bad luck? Oh, maybe you're just a victim. Destined to a life of bad luck and misfortune. When the physical universe keeps slapping you around and it's not getting any better, you may want to consider that things happen not just by luck and happenstance, but that you might have something to do with what is happening that's causing you to get slapped around all the time. Look, you're getting slapped around. Remember, although it may be happening to you, it's happening because of you as well. Although you may not want to claim responsibility for the accident or the slapping, or you might not want to tell the police report, hey, by the way, I had something to do with this. The reality is the insurance company is going to exact a penalty on you regardless of whose fault it was. Dude, you're going to get hammered either way. You're going to get rear-ended. It wasn't your fault. And the insurance company is going to raise your rates. Now, keep one thing in mind. Anytime you play a victim in order to be right, you're taking on the identity of a victim. And that can't be a good thing. Would you teach your kids be a victim? Huh, you send them to that class. Hey, we got a class. It's three months long. We want you to get an A. It's how to be a victim class. You basically will learn in this class how to turn responsibility over to other people for everything that happens in your life. Come on, man. You would never do that. Until a person is done being a victim, he or she is unable to create solutions and success. Impossible for a victim to create success because they've turned it over to someone else. That person only has problems. Once you start to approach every situation as someone who is acting, not being acted upon, you will start to have more control over life. Having or failing to have success, I believe, is a direct result of everything you're doing and thinking of yourself. You are the source, the generator, the origin, and the reason for everything, positive and negative. You're the start, the end all, baby. You're it. You're the generator for all the electricity. 
This is not meant to simplify the concept of success or the creation of success or the maintaining of and keeping of success, of course. But until you decide you're responsible for everything, you likely will not take the actions necessary to get you above the game, the game you're playing right now with all these problems. However, if you want to have it all, then of course, come on, you got to accept responsibility for everything. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of potential 10x energy making excuses instead of profits. It is a myth and a falsehood to think that success just happens or that it just happens to some people. I know that the approach I'm suggesting works because it's the one I've used to accumulate my own success. I didn't grow up in an especially privileged household. I didn't grow up with connections to the supposedly right people. I was giving no money to start my companies and had no money. I was not especially gifted, okay? Yet, I've been able to accumulate financial, physical, spiritual, and emotional success that is far beyond anything most people expected of me, all because I was willing to take actions at massive levels, assume complete control, take total responsibility for every outcome, whether it was the flu, a stomachache, a car wreck, a criminal stealing my money, my computer crashing, or even the electricity going out on my neighborhood, I assumed control and responsibility. And it was only until I started to believe that nothing happened to me and happened because of me was that I able to start really operating at the level, 10x levels, necessary. Someone once said to me when I was 25, 26 years old, Grant, no matter where I am, there I go. This little saying, like, literally turned me, pivoted me in my mind that no matter where I go, there I am. That's me there. It's me and all my stuff. This little saying suggested to me that I'm both the problem and the solution. Dude, that's the good news. If you're the problem, then you're the solution. If Dan's the problem, you don't have a solution, a way out. I didn't allow myself to blame anyone anymore. I didn't allow myself any more justifications for hardships that I encountered. I started to believe that although I may not always have a say in what happens to me, I always have a choice about how I respond to what happens to me. Look, success is not a journey, as countless people and books suggest. It's a state. It's a constant or otherwise state over which you have complete control and responsibility. You either create success or you don't. And it isn't for whiners. It's not for crybabies. It ain't for victims. You doubtlessly have gifts you have yet to use, or you wouldn't have picked up this book, man. 10X? Come on, who picks up a 10X book? You obviously clearly have gifts you have yet to use, potential that remains completely untapped. And you've been endowed with a desire for greatness, or you wouldn't be reading this. And you're aware enough to know that there are no shortage of success. Hopefully I convince you of that. Now, increase your responsibility level. Assume control for everything that happens to you. And live by the slogan that nothing happens to you, it happens because of you. And remember, don't be a little bitch. Okay, exercise. What do you want to assume control of in your life? What do you want to assume control of in your life? Two, success is not something that happens to you. It's something that happens fill in the blank. Three, I want you to write down three examples when you made success happen, where it didn't just happen, you made it happen. And the last exercise, what are the four consistent factors in life of the victim?
Chapter 7, Four Degrees of Action. One question that I've received over the years is exactly how much action Grant is necessary to create success. Not surprisingly, everyone is looking for the secret shortcut, me too, and equally unsurprising is the following fact. There are no shortcuts. The more action you take, the better your chances of getting a break. Disciplined, consistent, and persistent actions are more of a determining factor in the creation of success than any other combination of things. Understanding how to calculate that and then take the right amount of action is more important than your concept, your idea, your invention, or your business plan. Most people fail only because they're operating at the wrong degree of action. To simplify action, we're going to break down your choices into four simple categories or degrees of action. Your four choices are... One, do nothing. Two, retreat. Three, take normal levels of action. Or four, take massive action. Now, before I get into describing each of these, it's important to understand that everyone utilizes all four degrees of action at some time in their lives, and especially in response to different areas of their lives. For instance, you might use massive action in your career, but then completely retreat when it comes to your civic duties and your responsibilities. Another person might do nothing when it comes to learning about social media, even retreat from it. Another might take normal levels of action when it comes to eating healthy and exercising, but overexcel, take massive action when it comes to destructive habits. A person is obviously going to excel and do best in those areas in which he or she invests the most attention and takes the most action, unless, of course, the area is destructive. Unfortunately, most people on this planet spend their time in the first, second, and third degrees of action. Do nothing, retreat completely, or operate at normal levels of activity. The first two degrees of action, doing nothing and retreating, are the basis for failure. And the third degree, normal levels of action, will only create a normal existence at best. Now, let me say one thing. Number three, taking normal levels of action is the killer of the four because it deludes you into believing you're doing something when only what you're doing is normal and will never get you to extraordinary. Only the most successful people on very high levels of action that I refer to as massive levels are the ones most likely to succeed. So let's take a look at each of the four degrees to see what they mean and why you might choose each in a range of situations and areas of your life. The first degree of action, doing nothing. It's exactly what it sounds like. No longer taking actions to move yourself forward in order to learn, achieve, or control some area. People who do nothing in their careers, relationships, or whatever they want have probably given up on their dreams and are now willing to accept pretty much whatever comes their way. Despite how it may sound, do not assume that nothing requires no energy, no effort, and no work. Regardless of which degree of action you operate in, they all require work in their own way. Signs that you are doing nothing include boredom, lethargic, complacency, a lack of purpose, apathy. See, people in this group will find themselves spending their time and energy justifying their situations. They're actually spending energy. They're not doing nothing. They spend energy justifying why they're not doing anything, which requires as much work as all the other actions. 
When the alarm goes off in the morning, the doing nothing group will not respond at all. They sleep through the, uh, through the alarm going off. Although it may appear that they're not taking action, it actually takes a lot of energy not to get up in the morning. It takes a lot of mental energy to say, no, I'm just going to stay here in bed. It takes work to lose a job because of lack of production. It is work to be overlooked for a promotion and have to wait another year to be considered and then go home and have to explain this to your spouse. It takes tremendous effort to exist on this planet as an underappreciated and underpaid person. And it takes even more energy to make sense of the whole situation. The person not taking action has to make excuses for his or her condition. This requires tremendous creativity and effort. Salespeople who do nothing and then lose a sale because of doing nothing more often than they win have to explain to themselves, their spouses and their bosses, why they're not hitting their quotas. It's also interesting to note that those who do nothing in one area of their life will find something they love to do and spend time doing those things, something for which they often take massive levels of action. It could be online poker, gaming, biking, watching movies, reading books, whatever. Whatever it may be, I assure you, there's some place, some part of your life that receives full energy, attention, and massive levels of activity. Those who do nothing will then insist to their friends and family that they're happy and content and that all is right with them, which only serves as confusion to everyone that has to listen because it's evident that this person is not living up to their full potential. The second degree of action, retreaters, are those who take actions in reverse, probably in order to avoid negative experiences that they imagine will come as a result of actually taking action. The retreater personifies the fear of success phenomenon. He or she has experienced results that were not fruitful, or that he or she did not perceive as fruitful, probably better to say, and has therefore decided to avoid taking further actions that may prompt whatever they think could occur again. Like the do-nothings, retreaters justify their responses and believe it is in their best interest to remain operating at this current retreat level. Retreaters claim to be doing so in order to avoid more rejection or failures. It is almost never the actual rejection or failure that has impacted them, but something else. More often than not, it's their impression and evaluation of what failing and rejection mean that is causing them to justify retreat. Like doing nothing, retreating is an action that requires effort and hard work. Watch any healthy child, and you will see that it is not a normal human behavior to retreat. It is normal to advance and conquer. Usually, retreating only comes about as a result of being told to do so over and over and over again. So many of us have been instructed during childhood, don't touch that, be careful, don't talk to him, get away from that, and so on and on and on, and then start to adopt retreat as a survival activity. We tend to be pulled away from the very things about which we're most curious in life. Although it's often for our own good and supposedly keeps us safe, it can be difficult from years of being educated like this, of holding back, which might be why it's so difficult for many of us to try new things later in life. We might even be encouraged to retreat by a work associate, a friend, a manager, or a family member who believes we're being too ambitious or too focused or too dedicated in some area of life. 
Look, regardless of the reasons why retreaters move themselves into the opposite direction of their goals, the outcome is usually the same. I would imagine that everyone listening to this knows someone who has retreated. And perhaps you can even see how that retreat affected them negatively in some area of their life. Any realm in which you have assumed you can no longer advance and improve and are now deciding there's nothing you can do except retreat would be and should be considered an area of retreat. The stock market sucks. I'm never investing in the markets again. Retreat. Most marriages fail. I'm staying single. Retreat. The acting business is too tough. Retreat. I'll just be a waiter for the rest of my life. I can't own my own business. Retreat. The job market's terrible. No one's hiring. I'm filing for unemployment. Big retreat. I can't control the outcome of the election. I'm not going to even vote. Retreat into apathy. And notice the one thing that each of these scenarios has in common. They all still require some kind of action to be taken, even if it's just making a decision to retreat. Those who retreat will spend a lifetime justifying why they're retreating. There's usually no arguing with these individuals as they have typically convinced themselves completely that they're merely doing what they must do in order to survive. They will then spend as much energy justifying that decision to retreat as the most successful person will while they're creating their success. The best thing you can do for retreaters is to give them this book, have them listen to this audio program, and allow them, hopefully, if they can, to identify for themselves that they're in retreat. Here's the deal. Once a person sees the four degrees of action, maybe for the first time, and realizes that each of the four require energy, he or she may wake up to make other healthier choices. After all, if you're going to expend energy either way, why not do it in the direction of success? The third degree. People who take normal levels of action are probably the most prevalent in our society today. This is the group that appears on the surface to be taking the necessary amounts of action, and it's a normal level. This level of action creates the middle class. I'm not talking about earning level. I'm talking about people the way they think. This is actually the most dangerous of activities because it's considered acceptable. People in this group spend their lives taking enough action only enough action to appear average and create average lives, average marriages, average careers. However, they never do quite enough to create the levels of success that they can maintain for their survival. Unfortunately, a majority of the workforce takes normal degrees of action. It's the managers, executives, and companies that blend in more than they stand out. Although some members of this group may occasionally attempt to generate exceptional quality, they almost never create anything in exceptional quantities. The goal here is average. Average marriage, average health, average career, average finances. As long as average works, they're good to go. They're fine. They don't cause problems for others or themselves as long as conditions remain steady and predictable. However, the moment market conditions become negatively impacted and therefore less than average or normal, these same average people will suddenly realize they're at a big risk. Add any serious change to the conditions in which people take only normal actions, which I promise you will happen at some point in your lifetime, and all bets are off. 
It's not uncommon to encounter a situation that will challenge your life, your career, your marriage, your business, and your finances. Maybe all of them all at the same time. When you've been taking only normal levels of actions, when you've been making only normal investments in your future, you become more susceptible to the challenges that are certain to come your way. Any set of ordinary events, financial conditions, or stressful experiences can throw off a lifetime of typically acceptable levels of action and will result in serious degrees of stress, uncertainty, and hurt. Average, by definition, assumes, look it up for yourself, less than extraordinary. That is the definition. Average, less than extraordinary. It is truly, to some degree or another, just an alternative description of retreat and no action. Do you understand? The first three are really the same. Average levels is actually a retreat from what you're capable of. It doesn't even take into consideration the negative spiritual effects of a person knowing that your true potential is much greater for action. And then you operate below that, which you are completely capable of. This is where the ethics come in. Someone who takes average actions, but is capable of much more, is really electing to do some variation of nothing or retreating. So be honest with yourself. Do you have more energy and creativity available than you're using? You probably said yes. Look, average student, average marriage, average kids, average finances, average business, average product, average body type. Who really desires average? Imagine that the products and services that you're so often tempted to purchase used average in their advertising. Imagine, this fairly advertised product can be found at an average price and delivers mediocre results. Who would buy such a product? People certainly wouldn't go out of their way to find and pay for run-of-the-mill merchandise. We're offering cooking classes this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, that will guarantee you become an average cook. I can do that now without taking a class. Hey, new movie coming out, opening this weekend, average director, average acting, and the critics are raving two hours of average action on an average-sized screen in an average-sized theater near you. Oh, man, I can't wait to stand in line for that one and pay 14 bucks. Taking normal action is the most dangerous of all levels. Okay, you need to get this, man. Just doing average is going to kill you. It's accepted by society, so you're going to get support from society that what you're doing is all right, and there lies the big lie. This level of action has been authorized by the masses, and therefore people who don't take normal actions don't draw the necessary attention required to catapult them into success. Companies call me constantly to help the lower performers in their organization, yet they're overlooking the average and the top performers who are only taking average actions. I want to work with the average and the top performers, not the retreaters, because they are most capable. This book is probably more likely to wake up the third group than the first two. This book is probably going to wake up the normal action taker than someone who does nothing or retreats. Since the do-nothing, look, probably didn't even walk into the bookstore anyway. He's doing nothing. And the retreater, probably, if he saw the book, he retreated from it. Oh, that's dangerous. I can't go to 10x. People who take average or normal levels of action will buy this book, will buy this program, and hopefully come out from underneath the hypnotic spell that has been placed on you. 
It's only by moving from the third to the fourth degree of action that you can turn an average existence into an exceptional life. The fourth degree, massive action. Though it might sound far-fetched, massive action is the most natural state of action there is for all of us. Look at children. They're in constant action, massive levels of activity. Except when something is wrong, they're taking action. You're not born into apathy. You're not born into retreat. You're not even born into average. You're born at a massive action level. This was certainly true for me for the first 10 years of my life. Man, I was in nonstop massive action, little freak. Except when I was sleeping, okay, I was tripping all the time. Like most kids, I was full out all the time with people frowning and hinting that maybe I should bring it down a notch or two. In some cases, many notches. Hey, did that happen to you? I bet it did. Did you do it to your kids? Have you done it to them? Have you killed your kids? Have you told them retreat, be average, back off, be seen and not heard? See, until adults started telling you otherwise, you didn't know anything but massive action. Even the most basic elements of this universe in which we live support massive amounts of action. Dive beneath the surface of this ocean, which I would tell everybody to have that experience. You're going to see constant, massive, unlimited amounts of massive actions, of activities, like everywhere. Just beneath the crust of the planet, on this planet on which you walk every day, the movement is unbelievable. Massive levels of action taking place every single second of every single day. Look inside of an ant mound or in a beehive, and you're going to see colonies of living beings generating massive amounts of action in order to ensure their survival into the future. You know, the anthill, the beehive, underneath the crust of this planet and below the sea level, there aren't any psychiatrists telling you to back off, man. There's no medication. Baby, it's full out. Go for it. Kill it. Massive action. My dad was a very hard worker and very much a disciplinarian. And he was definitely willing to take massive action. Unfortunately, he died when I was 10 years old, which really hammered into me. I mean, this loss hammered me big time into a retreat. Oh, my gosh. That's a big loss at 10. I look back now and realize this event, I begin to retreat from areas of life in which I needed actually to take more action. Meanwhile, at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, I was expending a lot of energy in areas that really shouldn't have received any of my attention. Later in life, it was drugs, alcohol, wasting time, games, whole list of useless activities, damaging, dangerous, but I was taking massive action. This continued through high school, then college. Man, I accumulated a few more losses along the way, lost an older brother when I was 20, lost some girlfriends along the way. I continued to progressively retreat from those things that were good for me and continued concentrating my massive action on destructive areas. I wasn't necessarily lazy or unmotivated, even though people would have said that about me. But I wasn't. I was taking massive action in some areas, but completely retreated in others. Look, I just simply didn't have the proper direction and was being misinformed and encouraged not to attack life. I spent most of my time as a kid in classrooms, bored, without purpose and then gravitated to areas of life which I could expend a lot of energy, have big experiences, but not produce constructive results. I think this experience is actually something that many people endure or experience sometime in their life. Some people in their mid-40s, later in life, early. It just happened to me early on to, to misuse my energy and resources. Now, as I mentioned in a previous chapter, I experienced a major wake-up call at the age of 25. 
I knew, I knew I had to get redirected or else I would pay the ultimate price, the big price. I made a decision to make the same commitment to the creation of success, massive action, as I had been to my destruction. Since it was already hard work, not succeeding, destroying myself, I just changed the focus. See, people used to say, man, you're not focused. I'd say, yeah, dude, but I am focused. See, I was just focused on something destructive. Everybody's focused, you know. I never procrastinated where I could take massive action, where I hadn't agreed on retreatment. I just changed my focus at 25. Despite the fact that my father had been gone for 15 years, he still left with me this strong sense of work, push, make it happen. He was a great role model for me. He believed in strong work ethic. He was willing to do whatever it took to provide for his family. My father worked from a place of duty. He went after success as though it was a calling, a responsibility, an obligation, and his duty to take care of his family. I'm sure he enjoyed the financial rewards and the sense of personal accomplishment that came with his achievements. However, it was clear to me that he thought it to be his responsibility to his family, me, his wife, his church, his name, even God. He just ran out of time, baby. The body couldn't handle it. Now, once I finally woke up from my period of misdirection and misinformation, I committed all my energy to my career. I basically dropped the destructive things and took all that energy and redirected it into one thing. I'm going to be successful. Ever since the age of 25, the one thing I did right, whether it was the first sales job I have or the first company I built, was I approached whatever the task was before me with unbelievable massive amounts of action. It was never retreat. It was never no action. It was never average levels of action. It was constant, persistent, immense attack on a target. And I was labeled, negatively labeled for this constant, persistent, immense attack. Massive action is actually the level of action that creates new problems. So that's what massive action is going to do. It's going to create new levels of problems. So if you ask me, Grant, what does massive action mean? Baby, massive action is when you create new levels of problems. And until you create problems, new problems, you're not operating at the fourth stage of action. For instance, when I started my seminar business at the age of 29, I employed the 10X rule. And I employed the 10X rule because I wanted to create a name for myself as somebody that was going to change selling for everyone. I was going to bring ethics to selling. I was going to bring a new wave of selling. Not all these things that you've read about in books about avoid, evade, manipulate, know their personality type, neuro-linguistic programming, and figure out, trick them. I wanted to create a new way to sell people. And I used the 10X rule to create a name for myself. I'd start my day at 7 a.m. or earlier in most cases, and I wouldn't get back to my hotel till 9, okay? I was with clients at 7 a.m. I'd get back to my room sometimes 9 and 10 o'clock at night. I spent the day cold calling. You understand cold calling? I'm calling on multi-millionaires. Didn't know my name. I didn't know their name. I didn't even know the receptionist I had to get through. I'm walking in cold and calling on these guys, and offering to do presentations for their sales and management teams. I'd visit as many as 40 organizations in a day. I was kicked out of 28 of them, okay? 12 of them would take my time. Six of them would throw me out after they heard what I had to say, and six of them would become interested. I remember once being in El Paso, Texas, a city where I've never been. I knew no one. I'd never, ever flown into El Paso. I don't even think I knew where it was at on a map until I went there. Within two weeks, I had seen every single business in that market. 
Although I was unsuccessful in making everyone in that market know me, I certainly secured more business by taking massive action than I would have otherwise. A real estate agent at the time had asked to travel with me because he was interested in the business I was building and what I was doing, and he wanted to observe firsthand how I was growing my business. After three days of shadowing me, he admitted, Grant, there's no way I can do this for another day. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, I can't even ride with you another day, dude. He's like, I'm only riding with you, and I'm exhausted. And I said, you know what? I'm onto something, man. If I can operate at this level, I can smoke everybody. I then approached every day like my life depended on the actions I took. I wasn't the smartest. I didn't have any money. Nobody knew me. I'll outwork them. I'm just going to operate at 10x, massive levels of action. I refused to leave that city without knowing I had done everything possible to meet every business owner there and offer my services, introduce myself, and get to know their sales team. Calling on companies, Cole, taught me more about taking massive action and then grooving that discipline in that was natural to me anyway and natural to each of you than any other activity I've ever done and has proved more valuable to me in all my other ventures. See, when you're taking massive action, you're not thinking in terms of hours or calls. When you start operating at the fourth degree, your mindset shifts and so will the results. You'll end up instigating opportunities that you'll have to address earlier, later, and in a different way than you would on a normal day. So a routine day will become a thing of the past. You understand? See, when you start operating at Massive, you instigate situations. You, you, you trigger stuff and make things happen that the, you then have to say, oh, i got to be there earlier. i got to stay there later. The normal day just drops out. Routine things are a thing of the past. I continued this commitment to Massive Action until one day. It was no longer an unusual activity at Massive, but a habit. It was interesting to see how many people would ask me, Dude, why are you still out this late at night? What are you doing here on a Saturday? Why are you calling me on a Sunday? What are you doing calling on us, you know, this late in the day? You never quit, do you? I wish my people work like this. I wish I could hire some people like you. What are you on? Yeah, I was on something, all right. Dude, I was on my only choice. My only choice was massive action because retreat and average was not acceptable. I was treating success as my duty, obligation, and responsibility, and massive action was my ace. It was my ace in a hole. Signals that you're taking massive action are having people comment upon your level of action and admiring you for that. However, you can't think in terms of compliments or how many hours you work or even how much money you're making when you're operating at this degree. Instead, you have to approach each day as though your life and your future depend on your ability to take what? Massive action. When I started my first business, I had to make it work. I didn't have a choice. Look, I, there was nothing else I could do for a living. There was simply no two ways about it. This is what I had to do. If I wanted people to know me, about me, about what I had created, about what I thought would actually help not two or three people, but millions of people, then I had to take massive action, period. The problem wasn't competition. My problem when I started my business was one thing, obscurity. People didn't know who I was. My problem wasn't money. My problem was obscurity. My problem wasn't time. My problem is you didn't know me. My problem wasn't the gas bill or the phone bill or the hotel I stayed at. My problem is, hey, they don't know me. And the only thing that keeps people from knowing you and your product and your idea is massive action. This has been the single biggest problem I've encountered in my whole business. 
obscurity. Imagine from any entrepreneur's viewpoint, if they don't know you, they can't buy from you. If they don't know you, they can't hire you. This is every entrepreneur's biggest problem, obscurity. People don't know you or they don't know your product or they don't know your idea. And the only way to burst through obscurity is by massive action. You can't just spin your way into people knowing you. I didn't have money. Most of you, you're not going to have the money to advertise. Truth is, advertising, big advertising, billboards, TV, and big radio campaigns are only available today to the biggest of companies. I didn't have any money to invest in advertising, so I spent all my energy on phone calls, mail, traditional mail, emails, cold calls, return calls, visits, more visits, personal visits, asking people for help, just massive, sick levels of action. See, this level of massive action may sound and is indeed exhausting at times. However, it will create more certainty and security. I like certainty and security, don't you? I'd rather be exhausted and secure than rested and insecure and uncertain. And I promise you, massive action will create more for you than any education or training you will ever receive in your lifetime. Now, I've been called a lot of things due to my commitment to action. I've been called a workaholic, obsessive, greedy, never satisfied, driven, even a maniac. I've been labeled with all kind of labels like you got a problem. Yet every time I've been labeled like this, it's always been by someone, interesting enough, that was operating at less than the fourth degree of action, massive action. Because people that operate at massive action don't label other people like something's wrong with them when they're operating at massive action. I've never had someone who is more successful than I am considering my excessive action to be a bad thing because successful people know firsthand what it takes to achieve that kind of success. Successful people don't see excessive levels of action as a problem. Only unsuccessful people do. They, the successful, know themselves how they got where they wanted to go, and they would never identify massive action as undesirable in any way. Taking massive action means making somewhat unreasonable choices, and then, very important, you're going to follow it up with more action. This level of action will, I promise you, will be considered to be borderline insane by others. They're going to label you as something wrong with you. Wait for it. You're going to hear it. They're going to say that you've gone well beyond the agreed-upon social normal. And, and remember, massive action is going to create new problems for you. You want new problems, don't you? Not old problems that are little and boring. Aren't you sick of those? But remember this. If you don't create new problems, baby, you ain't taking enough action. You want new problems. I want too many people at the seminar. I, 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 want, I want the room to be too small and people have to stand up. I want too much money. I want the taxes to be too big, okay? I like it. You want those kind of problems. You can also expect to be criticized. I promise you, you're going to be labeled by others when you start taking levels of action that are considered massive. The second you start hitting it big, I promise you, you will be judged by the mediocre. But look who you're being judged by. The mediocre, the average, the retreaters, the do-nothings. People who operate at the other three levels of action will be threatened by your activity level and will often make it seem somehow wrong, what you're doing is wrong, in order to make themselves okay. These people cannot stand seeing others succeed at these levels. They can't, even, they can't even stand seeing other people operate at those levels, much less succeed, and they will, consciously or unconsciously, do everything they can to stop you. Whereas a sane person would step up to your level, 
He didn't admire you. Dude, that, I like that model, baby. Step up. A mediocre person, an average, a retreater, a do-nothing will tell you, you're wasting your time, man. This isn't going to work in our industry. Hey, it's a turnoff to our clientele. You notice how they try to help you with that little covert, that voice of theirs? Hey, I'm just trying to help you, man. It's a turnoff, I'm telling you. You know, take it or leave it. No one wants to work with you anymore. You're not being a team player. Even management occasionally discourages the massive action employee from putting forth this kind of substantial effort. It's even management's doing this thing because they're threatened. See, so, so you're going to know you're stepping into the realm of massive action when, one, you create new problems for yourself, and two, when you start receiving criticism and warnings and supposed help from others, including family members. But stay strong, baby. Stay strong. You know the other three don't work. This activity of massive action will break you out of this hypnotic state of mediocrity that you've been taught to accept, that you're surrounded by every day. And in order to deliver at that level of massive action, you must take every opportunity that comes your way. For example, okay, my wife's an actress. I tell her all the time. I say, baby, say yes to any audition. She could, hey, I got this audition. I don't know if it's for, baby, say yes. Say yes to everything. Say yes to life. Say yes to the experience. I don't care if it fits you or not, regardless of whether you're prepared. It doesn't fit you. Do it anyway. It's better to suck and be seen than not be seen at all. But what if I bomb, she says. I tell her, Hollywood is filled with terrible actors. They're still working. You know why? Because they're being seen, man. Look, just get out there. Maybe they won't pick you for the part. Maybe you suck. You went up for it. They see that you're perfect for some other part. Maybe you suck and they're like, hey, that chick would be perfect for that person we need because that person needs to suck and she, she does it naturally. And my wife doesn't suck, but you know what I'm saying? You want to show up. The goal is to be seen, to be thought of, to be considered in one way or the other. Your only problem is obscurity. It's not talent. In order for the endeavor you've chosen to work out for you, you have to make constant, relentless effort and massive action is the only level you want to operate at. Massive action cannot hurt you. It will always help you. This is also one place where quantity is more important than quality. Money and power follow attention. Money and power follow attention. So whoever gets the most attention is the person who takes the most action. And sooner or later, that person's going to get the most results as long as they're constructive and not destructive. No one's going to come to your house and make your dreams come true. Okay, it's not going to happen. Your dreams are not going to happen in your living room or your kitchen. You got to go out into the marketplace. No one's going to march into your company and make your products known to the world. In order to stand out from the crowd, the average, the masses, and for customers to even consider your product, your dream, your services, your organization, you must take massive action. I talked about the importance of domination, this domination concept, in my first book, If You're Not First, You're Last. I was not alluding to a concept of physical domination, but rather I was discussing the concept of mental domination, that is, occupying the space of the public, so that when people think or hear about a product similar to yours, a service, an industry, boom, they think of you. Why? Because you permeated space by taking massive action. Making massive action a discipline will break you through obscurity, which is your only real problem. Massive action will increase your value to the marketplace, and it will help ensure and guarantee that you generate success in any area of life where you elect to operate with massive action.
Exercise. When was a time in your life when you were taking massive action all the time and winning? Number two, what will you immediately create when you start taking massive action? There's one thing that'll happen immediately. Number three, what can you expect those who don't take massive action to say about you when you do take massive action? And four, what other things may happen as you start to take massive levels of action? Chapter eight, average is a failing formula. Look around and the chances you'll see a world filled with average. Although this is, as I previously stated, the acceptable level of activity upon which the middle class is built, there's growing amounts of evidence that this thinking and activity level is unworkable. Jobs are being shipped overseas. Unemployment is becoming more rampant. Members of the middle class are unable to keep their heads above water. People are living longer than their savings do. And entire companies and industries have been wiped out as a result of average products, average management, average workers, average actions, and average thinking. This addiction to average will kill the possibility of making your dreams a reality. Consider the following statistics. The average worker reads an average of less than one book a year and works an average of 37 and a half hours a week. The same person makes 319 times less money than the top CEOs in America, who, by the way, claim to read over 60 books a year. Many of these financially successful executives are maligned, that means hammer or beat up, for the huge sums of money they receive. However, we often fail to appreciate what these people have done to get where they are. Look, although it might not always look like they're working very hard, we dismiss the fact that somehow they managed to attend the right school, make the right connections, and then did whatever was necessary to move up the food chain and become CEO of the big bank. Don't be a hater, man. Join the club. Figure out what it takes to get in the top. It all required substantial action on their part to get hooked in. You can resent them if you want to, but that doesn't change the fact that they're being rewarded for the success they achieved. By the way, Everybody completely disregards that they read 60 times more than the average worker. You know, after the economy suffered greatly in 2008, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz, guy that I admire unbelievably, began to do what almost every other CEO in America was doing, cutting expenses and getting rid of non-performing locations. It's the first thing he did. He, he just started whacking huge whacks at expenses. He got rid of 500 Starbucks locations that weren't performing. But what he did... Next was different than most CEOs. He then did something that most CEOs did not do, or at least I didn't see him do. He traveled all over the United States and other countries to meet with Starbucks patrons, people buying coffee. Long after the average worker had gone home, self-made billionaire Howard Schultz was visiting Starbucks stores all across America, meeting with coffee drinkers to find out how Starbucks could better satisfy customers. Now, although the media didn't do much reporting on this, it was a pretty astounding pattern of events that happened after this. Here was a guy making his way across the country at 9 o'clock at night to get feedback from people buying his products. See, this is a prime example of embracing a greater-than-average thought and action process. This is clearly above and beyond what the marketplace and even the customer expects. It far exceeded action considered common for any CEO 